Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me today as co-host is Maggie Mendenhall-Casey of the City of Chicago's Corporation Counsel's Office. Hi, Maggie. Hey, John. How are you doing today? Um, well, and you know, today's topic, Maggie, you know, you know how you occasionally hear stars of stage and screen say that they do one production for the studio and then another production for themselves? Yeah, yeah, yes, I have heard that before. This is the latter for me. I love this topic. We're here today to nerd out a little bit, to nerd out a lot of it, maybe, about legal writing or perhaps more expansively persuasive writing in general. And joining us today to discuss that topic and his new book, aptly titled Legal Writing, A Judge's Perspective on the Science and Rhetoric of the Written Word, is Judge Bob Bacharach of the United States Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit. No less than the likes of Erwin Chermerinsky have described the book as magnificent, and it's hard to disagree, and not just because its author is a judge. Judge Bacharach has served as a federal appellate court judge since 2013, and before that served as a federal magistrate judge. He has handled thousands of cases in his nearly 23 years on the bench and plainly knows something about what makes for a convincing argument. Let's learn what that is. Judge, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you and Maggie so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Let's start with a question that I know you must have put plenty of thought into before you ever picked up a pen to write this book. There's no shortage of legal writing books out there, some more famous than others, many excellent. What prompted you to write this one? What what sets it apart? Well, the reason that I set out to write the book was, frankly, to help myself take a deep dive and a fresh perspective into what makes for effective written communication. What I hope out of those hundreds or thousands of other wonderful legal writing books out there is a little bit of a different perspective. What I wanted to do was uh, to explore one of the ways that we often think about communication, and that is through hearing oratory. There are some you know, wonderful speakers, FDR, Churchill, JFK, Martin Luther King Jr., that come to mind where we heard their magnificent words. And it wasn't just the magnificence of their delivery, but it was also, I think, a great deal attributable to how they put together words and clauses. Uh, you know, we often think about our audience, but we're all audiences for these magnificent speakers. So I wanted to see what it, what was it about rhetoric and oratory that makes it so effective, apart from the delivery. And also, in the course of writing the book, John and Maggie, I frankly discovered this field that I was totally unaware of called psycholinguistics, where these right. cognitive psychologists study how the brain processes both oral and written language. And again, the way we think about our audiences, it occurred to me that a lot of what we think about our audience is merely intuition. And these and these people for almost a century have been conducting empirical studies on how we process punctuation, how we process particular fonts, how we process passive voice versus active voice, uh, long sentences versus shorter clauses. And it occurred to me that, you know, maybe we can learn a lot and mine this field so that we can take a, a maybe a more disciplined approach into how we think about our audiences. So your psycholinguistics helps you go back and kind of reverse engineer famous and effective speeches to learn what makes them so effective. 
right? What is it that you found? What were the big takeaways? Well, one of the takeaways is with writing long sentences versus short sentences. Most people in my generation were taught to keep your sentences short, 25 words, 20 words. And yet, you know, there are some really effective legal writers, both judges, justices, advocates, that write rather long sentences. So I I wanted to uh, take a look at that. And what I found is that psycholinguists tell us that we process language and process written information not based on the length of the sentence, but based on chunks of information, familiar units. could be a clause, a sound, a phrase. Um, But we process these very limited segments of information in our short-term memory. And what they tell us is, is that we process those familiar units of information one chunk at a time, and we aggregate those with adjacent chunks and where we continually evolve these into our short-term memories as larger and larger chunks of information, and eventually part of it gets transferred to our, uh, to our long-term memory. And so I, I, again, took a look at some oratory, and I'll, and I'll give you an example. Letter from Birmingham Jail. Hmm. Martin Luther King Jr. has one sentence in that magnificent letter that's 305 words, 305 words for a single sentence. It would violate every rule in the book based on, <laughs> on, on, high, on where I went to high school. He would have gotten an F in English. But the sentence is absolutely magnificent because what he does is he breaks up this rather, this, this extraordinarily long sentence into these individual chunks of information that we can easily process, according to cognitive psychologists, And I'll give you an example. The sentence starts, when you've seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim. So that's the first, this visual chunk that all of us can easily visualize. None of us have any trouble processing it. We store that in our short-term working memories. And then what we have after that is a semicolon. So he's telling us, take a sustained pause, and I'm going to give you the second chunk of information. When you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters. Again, force pause, semicolon. And he goes through these 12 chunks of information in this one sentence. And so it's amazingly easy to understand, and yet it is 305 words. When we look at different ways that we're told I think a lot of intuitive instruction in the legal writing uh, books, you know, for example, keep your sentences short. You know, I I think we can draw on both examples from rhetoric and from cognitive psychology, maybe to take a little bit of a more nuanced approach and, and maybe not focus so much on keeping your sentences short as much as thinking about how we break up our sentences, our information into more discrete, more digestible chunks of information like King did. So, Judge, when you're talking about taking from oration and looking at speeches and how that informs writing, I am a bit curious about what you think are distinguishing factors between a great orator, a great writer. Um, I know you even talk about some of the techniques such as rapping that you might use in both writing as well as oration where you're repeating what was previously said, but what are some of those distinctions? Well, Maggie, um, 
I think that the most critical distinction is all of these magnificent orators are so clearly understood. You know, I just gave an example from Letter from Birmingham Jail with Martin Luther King Jr. But if you look at some of JFK's very famous speeches, if you look at Churchill, if, of FDR's speeches, these people are trying to persuade us, to inspire us to act. But I think, you know, part of their brilliance as communicators was that they're not going to inspire us. They're not going to motivate us to act unless we instantly recognize what they are telling us in real time. And then if we translate into that, into how we, say, write letters to clients or to write a brief for a, a judge or judges, if a judge or a client has to reread a pronoun or reread a clause to figure out what it means, they're doing exactly the opposite of what these brilliant orators did, where we didn't have to play back the tape. We understood in real time exactly what they're saying, what every pronoun had an antecedent for. And the clarity, I think, is what is the common denominator among all of these quite different styles for all of these orators. I imagine when you were running through the first couple clauses of the letter from Birmingham jail, it one of the things that struck me as you were describing it is you knew from the second clause on exactly what he was doing and what the pattern of the letter would be, right? You saw that he was going through essentially a what kind of like a rhetorical film reel of images. You knew he would continue to do that. And then at some point he would say, you know, when you've seen this, what happens next, right? You knew he would get to that that pivot point just from the first two clauses of that 305-word sentence. Is that predictability a positive or can it be a drawback? How do you see that? Oh, it's to me, it's unquestionably a major strength. Mm -hmm. and, and that example, and John, I think you're spot on as we read each of these digestible chunks of information in King's sentence, it's imperative that we instantly understand what his point is, because it's not going to be in that particular sentence until he's already gone through over 290 words where he tells us what the point is. Right. And but the you, point, know, you know it's coming. But we know it. You know, when he ends this sentence and says, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. The reader, all of us, will go, no kidding. He's right. telling the public why you have difficulty understanding why we and myself, my followers, are so impatient for racial justice. This is the reason. Mm -hmm. and, and you're right. As we read each one of these little clauses, we instantly know, and, and it was so important for King, I think, to be able to get his message across by making sure that we understood it as we are reading it. Otherwise, we're just scratching our head and saying, you know, okay, maybe we'll get to the point eventually. And I think in legal writing, a lot of times we forget this. It's so important to do what we can by creating context before we plunge into details, to make sure that the chunks of information are instantly recognizable, that the reader can extract the point as they are reading them. And I think that's really sort of the, perhaps the most important part of persuasion 
is the ability for the reader and listener to instantly understand what we're trying to communicate. And just a a process question, Judge. So you have quotes from Martin Luther King as well as Stephen King. And I'm curious as to what informed your decision in terms of deciding this is a quote that I want to include or you know what, this quote doesn't make the list. This speech doesn't make the list. Well, great question, Maggie. What I really was trying to do was to take communicators, oralists, novelists, that all of us or most of us, will instantly give a fair degree of credibility to. I mean, Stephen King was not only a wonderful novelist, but he wrote books and many articles about how to write. And, you know, he was really a master of how to put language together. And I tried to take oralists, you know, like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. and FDR, JFK, that have a, a certain degree of credibility built in because I think most of us just intuitively regard some of these orators in a class by themselves. And so I really wanted to draw from those individuals because, frankly, of the credibility that they sort of inherently have. So, Judge, that makes me think of something that I do sometimes. And I've never, I'm not terribly introspective as a human being, and I've never really quite understood why I do it. But I know it works. And it's this. When I'm having difficulty sometimes getting going on a brief, you know, it's not exactly writer's block, but it's just I can't find that rhythm. I will pick up a book I have of like Churchill's speeches or of one of Lincoln's speeches. I have one of JFK's speeches. And I just thumb through it, read a few of them, and I find myself kind of falling into a rhythm reading the words, you know, the flow of the prose. It gets my mind going. It gets the pen flowing. Is that part of what you're talking about, or is that something else? You know, I think, uh, I do think it maybe is a little bit of a different strategy in legal writing. I think it is very effective. I uh, have my own sort of variation from that as, you know, distancing ourselves from the current task. But, you know, sometimes, you know, when we're working so hard to you know, to to get the mechanics right on our initial draft. And so we're, it's just, you know, like pulling teeth, uh, you know, to get the next sentence out. And we read some of these sentences that just flow so easily. You know, I do think it's, you know, is a little bit of a, of taking a mental break of, of mm. distancing ourselves from the project at hand. But I, I do think that that's a, you know, the technique that you are describing is very, very effective. Judge, I have a bit of a disclosure to make. As I was reading the book, there were a couple of suggestions you made that I had a a gut or instinctual reaction like, no, that's wrong. That's not what I was taught. But it, it was good to hear that from a judge to help me move on from some of those things. One in particular that no one could say this besides a judge or your, you know, the final decision maker on this is using a litigant's name versus using their party designation. I am guilty of, um, I am a defense attorney for the city of Chicago of calling my client city and calling plaintiff plaintiff. But you said that judges prefer and it's clearer to hear somebody referred to by their actual name. Is that correct? And if so, can you let us know why? Sure. And, you know, Maggie, I I will say that I don't pretend that I know sort of among judges in general, you know, what their preferences are. 
The reason I do think that using uh, names is, uh, when there's not a lot of names, is just, again, the focus on clarity. Let's say we have a court term and we're going to hear in the course of three or four days, you know, maybe 18, 24 cases. And so when we read appellant and appellee, or frankly, even the city, you know, we may have a day where we happen to have nothing but qualified immunity cases where a plaintiff has sued an individual officer along with a municipality or a county. So sometimes, you know, just the specificity of the name will just be easier for us to remember. And, you know, when I was in practice, and it's been a long time since I've been in legal practice, but what what I did was whenever I would refer to my client, it would be by name, and it would always be right. generic description, yeah. you know, yeah. the, the big band yeah, in a city or something. Yeah. If it was so you, you're, you're humanizing your client and de- <laughs> right. dehumanizing the other side. Yeah, Right. And, uh, and, you know, I really, frankly, haven't seen the science on this, but I've come to disbelieve that because mm-hmm. I just think that, uh, you know, judges are really trying to do what's legally correct. And in order to help a judge understand sort of the cogency, the logic of your premises and your argument. I just think it's so important to try to make however we refer to parties in a way that's just the most easily understandable and memorable uh, for the judges. And that's just the way my brain works. You know, I will remember names you know, more readily than I will, certainly the appellant or the appellee, but sometimes even the plaintiff and the defendant, particularly if there's, you know, it becomes very difficult when there's cross-claims and counter-claims, but that's a little bit of a unique uh, situation. And with that piece of Marshall-esque wisdom, we should take our first break. We'll be right back. Getting legal malpractice insurance doesn't have to be complicated. Let CBA Insurance Agency do the heavy lifting for you. We shop to the top carriers to find the best rates. Get a free quote by visiting cbainsurance.org. And we're back. So, Judge, Maggie's last question, I think, got my mind racing on some practical questions I have because we have you in the hot seat. You know, we're the lawyers. We never get to ask you questions. Now we get to ask you questions. I want to take advantage of that a little bit, turn the tables and ask you some specifics. One thing that lawyers shouldn't do, but really often do is make their statement of fact sections in a brief, really argumentative that's bad. It gives the other side a lot of openings to attack your credibility. It annoys judges. But it's always occurred to me, or I don't know about always, but you know, in, in the better part of years of my career, that that doesn't mean that a statement of facts can't be persuasive without being argumentative, right? What makes a statement of facts fair, accurate, but persuasive without being argumentative? How does a lawyer do that? Great question, John. The most important aspect, I think, for a statement of facts is that when a judge reads the statement of facts, he or she understands how those facts are going to fit in to your argument. And so it could be the most argumentative, well-created, well-crafted statement of facts, 
But if I don't understand how those facts are going to fit in to the premises of your legal argument, it will be totally lost on me. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's important to create the context of particularly of, of your legal argument and how those facts will fit into your argument before you plunge into those facts. I do think you're absolutely right, John, that if you are going to say a summary judgment and you're arguing as a defendant in a take Maggie's situation, you're a city arguing for summary judgment, say on municipal liability in a Section 1983 case, and you are then continuing to rely on your own version of the evidence in the statement of facts, the judge will intuitively discount probably much or maybe even all of it, because of course, on summary judgment, you're to view the evidence the light most favorable to the non-movement. Right. And so, you know, those are, I think, just little examples that you really do want to make it as indisputable as possible. Otherwise, the opposing party is going to come back and say, you know, this is their statement of facts is the reason that you should not grant summary judgment because the whole argument is predicated on their own uh, mm-hmm. version of the evidence rather than you know, the non-movement's version of the evidence. So I do think you want to make it as non-argumentative, as indisputable, uh, unchallengeable as you possibly can. And the last thing I would say about the statement of facts is excise everything that does not materially affect your legal argument. Again, taking my own uh, briefs as uh, an example when I was in practice of what not to do, you know, what I tried to do was to, in my statement of facts, is to to prominently underscore of what a great person my client is. Or if it was a company, how, boy, the world uh, could not exist without my client. They have done so much for the world. <laughs> <laughs> they should be rewarded. And now I realize all that effort was completely lost on the judges. They don't care who is good and bad and whether the company is good or a good or bad company, what they want is something that's going to be helpful to what they were appointed to do or elected to do. And that is to decide what is the legally correct decision in that case. So if you excise all the dates that are not material, if it's not a statute of limitations issue and you just excise all the extraneous facts, then the judge is really forced to focus, to crystallize, to remember those facts that are really going to have an impact on his or her decision. Judge, I appreciate hearing your your transition in thinking from being a litigator to being a judge. And I think you even talk about that at the start of your book and your preface when you were thinking about this is the type of writing that I do when I'm arguing and this is the type of writing that I do as an arbiter of fact. And I'm curious about how did you transition from having the hat on, donning the hat of the litigator, taking that off, and then putting on the cap of the judge, the arbiter of fact? How were you able to make that transition? You know, the passage of time helps. When you become a judge, your thinking all of a sudden goes from trying to present the best argument on behalf of a particular constituency to trying to decide, okay, what is legally correct? I may hate this result. I may think it is a terribly unjust result. 
a horrible result. But what is legally compelled by the statute, by the precedents? And with the passage of time, I think it either gets a lot more difficult or a lot easier. For me, frankly, with the passage of time, it became, you know, far easier. And in part, Maggie, I think that's because when I when I started and I was a magistrate judge, as John said, for almost 14 years, you know, I was so ingrained, particularly in the cases that I typically concentrated on in my practice, that I would try so hard to say if I was doing primarily defense work in a particular area to say, OK, well, now I've got a different head on. I can't have these biases that I've had. And so once you start thinking about that, it's sort of like being an umpire calling balls and strikes and thinking, okay, well, on your last pitch, you you know, you called a ball <laughs> when it was a strike. And so I need to correct that. You know, you just can't be thinking that way. And just with the passage of time, you know, I think it's become quite easier. So Judge, something you said just a little bit ago really struck a chord with me. And you're talking about lawyers writing for the judges to make the judge's job easier in reaching the right decision. And, you know, that's something that I always stress with, for example, the associates in our firm when I'm working with them on a brief is, although I, I phrase it a little differently, I say, write your brief for the clerks, less of the judges, because you want them to be able to pick up your brief and use it essentially as a guide for writing the decision. I you know, try to structure it the way they would structure it. Be 100% honest and accurate in your depiction of the facts, like you said, but also in your characterizations of the law, right? Don't don't hedge. Take Take bad cases on directly so they know that if they're agreeing with you, they know how to do the same and they can rely on your characterizations of those briefs or those cases rather. Is that... When you're reading a brief, do you find many advocates doing that, structuring their briefs the way you would structure a decision? Or do you find that you have to reorganize everything and start from scratch? You know, I don't – it's a great question, John. I haven't really thought a whole lot about whether the the sequence of the argument is something that I typically need to restructure. I would say probably the answer is I probably do reorganize probably all of my judicial opinions. But I do think that – the advocates that do what you're suggesting does enhance their persuasiveness so much. And the example that you gave is just perfect. And that is a case that appears to go the other way. You know, you have two approaches that you can take. One is to pretend it doesn't exist, hope the judge, you know, missed that in the other side's brief, or frankly, even if the other side overlooks it, to hope mm-hmm. that the judge doesn't, you know, doesn't figure it out. Well, that's very, very unlikely. So if the judge doesn't have the benefit of your trying to reconcile that with the ultimate argument or distinguishing it in some way, you're really giving up something that is going to be so critical to to trying to persuade the judge to adopt your position. So I think I think your strategy is is very, very effective. Ignoring it is is really not a good option. But I, I do think that it's sometimes just impossible to know how a judge is going to want to sequence, to organize the progression of his or her explanation for the decision. But still, if you know, you're a different 
person. And so you won't be able, you may not even know who's on your panel, of course, but even at a district at a district court level where you know who the district judge is, it's going to be difficult really to be able to project how that judge is going to want to, you know, want to structure his or her opinion. But, you know, trying to structure it in a logical way that you think will make it easy for the judge, again, in real time to follow it, to understand why you're talking about, you know, Roman numeral three after one and two, but before four and five why you've organized it the way you did, I think is really helpful to the judge in trying to persuade the judge to adopt your position. Judge, I'm going to ask you a bit of a topical question. In these past few weeks, it's kind of seemed like it's one of those rare times where certainly the whole profession, if not the whole country's eyes, are focused on confirmation hearings. So I'd just be curious if you would be willing to share a little bit about what your hearing process was like, what the prep was like. Sure, Maggie. Um, so I will just say this. I'm um, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I live in Oklahoma. There are, I think, about five Democrats in the state of Oklahoma. All of them have the last name Bacharach. You know? <laughs> <laughs> All your family, right. All my family. You know, it's pretty much it, us and nobody else. We had two Republican senators. We had all Republican representatives, when I decided that I wanted to have this position. I've never participated in politics, Democratic politics, and I really didn't have any political connections. But so I I will tell you, I'm not necessarily, you know, proud of this, but nobody called me and said, Bob Bacharach, you would be a wonderful circuit judge. You need to, you know, to go for this. Bob Bacharach, you know, said... <laughs> Okay, I'd like you to consider me. So I really did try to try to get the position. And what I found out later was Senator Coburn, who's now passed away, was uh, one of my two senators. He was a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee that gave him a great deal of sway and influence over the selection. My politics couldn't be more different than Senator Coburn's. But what he decided, and I did not know how President Obama got my name. I found out after I was nominated, the White House eventually told me after I was nominated that Dr. Coburn had given President Obama my name, which stunned me, again, because I didn't know Dr. Coburn and really didn't agree with any of his political positions. But but one well, of the things... If he, but if he had to put up a Democrat and there's only five in the state, I mean, it's a pretty short list, right? Exactly. You see, they're my sister's. You right. know, or my brother, and you know, and so are they was, lawyers? Well, one was a lawyer, and so okay. I did beat okay. out my sister. You know? right. So that was, that was good, but it, it ended up it was not controversial. Nobody voted against me, so I was really lucky. I I was nominated about a little over a year before the end of President Obama's first term. And whatever you call it, you can, you know, some people call it the Joe Biden rule. Some people call it the Strom Thurmond rule. You know, call it whoever you want. It stalled out. Uh, Senator Reid um, filed a motion for cloture in uh, the close of President Obama's first term. I guess I have the distinction of being the vote against cloture that ended up, ended all of the confirmations for President Obama's first slate of circuit nominees at the end of his first term. And uh, when he was reelected, uh, he did renominate me. And, you know, it went through, I think, shortly after that. So it was a pretty... 
I mean, it was a very, uh, it took a long time. Uh, you know, it was, I don't know, three or four years before I was eventually confirmed. But it was, uh, I think, relatively speaking, a, a, you know, a smooth process. So back to briefing, although that curveball was fun, Maggie. Um, you know, w- one of the topics I've seen develop so much over the last decade, Judge, is lawyers and judges talking about the topography of briefs because more and more people are reading briefs on screens rather than paper now and how that affects our absorption of what's on the page or the screen, I suppose. What does the science tell us about that, about how we should be structuring, presenting things on the computer screen rather than on the printed page? You know, and I don't purport to be an expert on typography. There's people that, like Matthew Butterick, primarily, that have uh, really devoted so much time to studying it. But one of the things that people that I do respect, like Butterick, tell us is that that some of the old wisdom is more pronounced now with us reading more digitally, and that is creating as much white space as you can, not having lengthy paragraphs, more bulleted or numerical lists that create more white space because particularly when we're reading so much on a computer screen or a tablet where you have a smaller visual universe, it just becomes very difficult when you just really don't have any, you know, visual break. And so I think some of that, I think, is good advice when we're reading on paper, but particularly good advice as far as creating more visual white space on the page you know, in this increasing concentration of reading uh, information digitally. You talk about a number of rhetorical and writing devices in the book, and I'm very curious about what your thought process is when to use different devices. Even as I was sending out emails today, I was keeping your book in mind, trying to change some things up, and I started thinking, well, when do I use a long sentence? When should I use a short sentence? Is a semicolon appropriate here, or should I use a period? So when do you make those decisions of how you want to deploy different devices? Yeah, Maggie, I think one of the things, for example, if you are, say, even writing a letter to a client or in a brief, there's going to be a lot of what you have to say. We talked earlier about the statement of facts. Well, usually there's not going to be anything that's going to be just terribly monumental in terms of impact in the statement of facts. But there are going to be some points in your argument that you really do want to sink in. And if you decide that you're going to use some maybe one word sentences or three or four word sentences that really can't help but jar the reader and focus the reader on just those two or three words. I think those are sort of the points that you want to think, okay, how can I frame this point in a way that will set it apart from all of the other sentences? If I really want the judge, let's say, you know, an argument on behalf of the city, you know, to realize that there is no policy or custom, this claim for say, excessive force is the first time that the municipality has ever been subjected to a suit for that. You know, a really important point for your side. I think then you maybe want to use maybe the only short sentence, you know, in the brief. Or if you do want to, you know, we talked about the the example from 
you know, Martin Luther King Jr. as far as having sort of a dramatic buildup to your final point, keeping in mind John's observation, which is so good that the reader knows as we're reading it, what the point is until you get to the climax at the end. But if you think of some of these rhetorical devices as things that are not going to emphasize every, you know, in every point, but the points that you want to emphasize. And frankly, sometimes it's a matter of removing focus, too. And I'll give you an example. John Roberts wrote a, uh, I'm not on a first-name basis for the Chief Justice, when he was in private practice, uh, he wrote a wonderful amicus brief. I think it's in a case called United States versus Smith, where he was, um, it was an amicus that was contesting the validity under the Commerce Clause of a statute that criminalized uh, the use of destructive devices. And the proponent in his argument was someone who had been convicted of arson for destroying a building. And he has one passage in this amicus brief where he has 13 sentences in a row. And curiously, the only one of these 13 sentences that is framed in the passive voice is the building was destroyed. You know, not, you know, Joe Smith, you know, destroyed the building. He obviously, you know, he wasn't hiding the ball, but it wasn't a particularly terrific fact for him. And so I can't imagine that it was just an accident that he decided to downplay the actor by using passive voice for the only time in this 13-sentence sequence. So sometimes it's a matter of de-escalating or or, uh, de-emphasizing, and sometimes it's a matter of, you know, trying to underscore what you really want, uh, the point that you really want to drive home. Let's go to oral argument really quickly. I know that's outside the the bounds of your book, but you, you finish the brief. You've heard probably thousands of them at this point. You finish the brief, you're walking up to that podium, you don't want to just recite what's in your brief because you're going to put the judges to sleep, and if they stay awake, you're going to be annoying them. What is a good strategy for oral argument? What What do you want to accomplish at an oral argument as an advocate? There's only one goal of oral argument, and that is answering the judges' questions. And, you know, I, when I was in private practice, there was a local judge that used to say, when I would start, and I'm sure I wasn't the only one, he would always start with saying, well, don't tell me what's in your brief because I've already read your brief. And I used to think, you know, if I thought it was a good point, I'd, I'd put it in my brief, <laughs> you yeah. know. But, uh, but pretty soon the judges will, at least in our court, will start asking a lot of questions. And it's difficult when you're nervous and it's hard not to be nervous. You know, a lot rides on your cases and and you have so little time, you know, if you had an hour and a half, you know, that would, you know, relieve a little bit of the strain. But when you've got 15 minutes or in other courts, even less time, it's, you know, it's, it's really nerve wracking and you don't want to waste those precious moments. But the only purpose of oral argument is to answer the judge's questions. You know, we're human beings. We're going to ask dumb questions from time to time, but it's not on purpose. It's because, you know, we are as fallible as any other human being you know, we may miss the point. We may misremember the point. And, you know, it's hard, you know, not to be frustrated when you get a question you, that you think is a boneheaded question. But this is your opportunity, you know, not to say, you know, judge, that's just a really stupid question. How did you ever get to be a judge? But, <laughs> but you know, to diplomatically 
inform the judge maybe of the premise that the judge is using that's just factually incorrect or, you know, what the error is, you know, in the judge's premise behind the question. But just answering those questions, just listening, you know, you don't have to be the most eloquent person in the room. Usually the most effective advocates in oral argument are not the most elegant speakers, but the judges are asking questions because they want your help in probing what the legally correct outcome is, because that's their job, is to decide what is the analysis, what's the outcome that's legally correct. And hopefully that's the only reason that a judge will ever ask questions of an advocate. And those those really are, in my experience, the, the best oral advocates I've seen. They're engaging in a conversation with the court. They're not presenting to the court. You know, they get up there and they, they may say, you know, they may have a little speech to begin with, but then they could, uh, obviously, if they're the appellee, they start immediately answering the questions that were asked of the appellant, which is a very effective tool. But if they're, if they're the appellant, they can just stop talking for a minute and say, I welcome the court's questions. And that gets the conversation going. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, sometimes, and I'll speak for myself, you know, it's rude to interrupt people. You know, uh, sometimes one of us, just in a, the three of us, may inadvertently talk over one another. And, you know, we're all just, you know, embarrassed when we accidentally talk over someone. And when judges have to ask their questions by interrupting people, you know, sometimes I'll sit there, you know, a little bit sheepish about interrupting somebody. So it's it's wonderful, you know, when an advocate, really, they've completed what they've had to say in seven minutes and they'll just say, you know, that's really all I have to present. I'd be glad to entertain your questions. And that way, you know, if we do have questions, we don't feel bad about it, about interrupting this poor person. So I think it's really effective. Sometimes there's just a tendency, it's human nature. If you get 15 minutes, I'm going to, you know, talk for 15 minutes, whether I have anything to say to justify 15 minutes or not. So last question before we need to take a break. What would you tell lawyers about how to become a better writer, other than picking up and reading your book and absorbing every word of it. What would you tell them in a few sentences? Read everything you can about uh, about legal writing. There's a number of, you know, wonderful books about legal writing. Ross, Ross Guberman is just a wonderful instructor. Brian Garner has written a number of wonderful books. There's a lot to be gained from all of the legal writing books. Number two, humility. It's the only reason that anybody gets better at what we do in interviewing, you know, guests on a podcast or becoming a judge or becoming or being a lawyer is, you know, if we think we have reached the pinnacle and we are perfect, the perfect judge, one thing what we do know is I will not be the perfect judge. Now, I know that anyway. I'm never going to be the perfect judge, but trying to get better at what we do. I'm 62. I'm almost 63. If I'm not a better legal writer next week than I am this week, I have failed as a legal writer. Hopefully next year I'll be a better legal writer than I am now. Frankly, that was my principal motivation for writing the book. It wasn't to help you or Maggie. It was to help me become a better legal writer. And I think that that is just critical is to have the humility that all of us want to get better as a legal writer because all of us, and I'm exhibit A, have room to improve. So I I think those are the uh, critical ingredients. 
That's a perfect place for us to take a break. We will be right back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Are you looking to get away to someplace warm and sunny this winter? Join the Chicago Bar Association's CLE Abroad in Mexico. We're headed to Mexico City from March 24th to March 26th with an optional extension trip to beautiful San Miguel Allende from the 27th to the 29th. The trip will include CLE programming for attorneys, as well as tours, cultural experiences, and networking opportunities. Attorneys and their guests are welcome to attend. To learn more and register, visit chicagobar.org backslash Mexico 2024. We hope to see you there. Seeking to expand your legal network, sharpen your skills, and obtain free CLE? Unless you plan on being a professional failure, that's probably a good idea. Join the Chicago Bar Association today and connect with lawyers and judges who lead Chicago's legal community. The CBA will help you expand your personal and professional networks while providing practical programs and resources that meet your specific practice needs. New lawyer membership starts at just $82 a year. Learn more at www.chicagobar.org. And we're back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. They're pretty simple. Maggie and I have done some research. We found one law that is real and on the book somewhere, but probably shouldn't be for a variety of reasons. We've made another one up, and we're going to quiz each other and the judge to see who can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Judge, are you ready? I'm ready, I think. (laughs) Maggie, are you ready? I'm ready, and you got this, Judge. (laughs) All right, Maggie, why don't you take us away? Sure. So I am going to default to my prosecutorial history. And the two statutes that I have are in the state of Illinois. There's a statute that criminalizes spitting on another person. And, oh, it looks like the judge is taking notes. (laughs) In the state of (laughs) of Illinois, there is a statute that criminalizes transmitting HIV to another person. Which one is fact and which one is fiction? Um, Maggie, I am going to opine that the the real statute criminalizes spitting on another person. And what's your guess, John? I agree that's battery, and I'm also pretty sure I saw a headline that was talking about the repeal of the HIV law recently. Well, I could not stump you two. <laughs> you guys are, are correct. As Jonathan said, um, I'm surprised that a fancy uh, appellate lawyer knew that. Um, spitting what? on someone. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> I thought it might be a little a bit too lowbrow for you. But yes, uh, spitting on somebody is is a battery. And in 2021, Governor Pritzker decriminalize the transmission of HIV because it was disincentivizing people from getting tested and knowing their status. So both of you guys got it right. Well, thank you for the fancy lawyer jibe. That's probably the nicest backhanded compliment I've gotten all week. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Round two. Option one. Federal law makes it a crime to intentionally sell onion rings resembling normal onion rings, but actually made from diced onions without an explicit label explaining that the onion ring is not, in fact, a natural onion ring. Long sentence, lots of commas. You're trying to trip us up. Option number two, maybe. Maybe the structure is intentional. Option number two, federal law makes it a crime to play softball 
in a national park after the hour of 10 p.m. local time. <laughs> Meg, I saw one of your eyebrows shoot up. I guess number two is a real statue. Why? Um, just because of the timing and also because um, I, I, it sounds like it has something to do with a permit. Like why that it would be preventing people from being in the park that late. Judge, what do you think? I think what number one is the real statute in my rationale is it is the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. It's crazy enough to make it into the real statutes. 21 CFR 102.39, part of the FDA's regulations on food for human consumption, says that onion rings in particular... Nothing about french fries. Onion rings in particular must be a natural ring. And if they're not, if they're comminuted, I had to look that word up. It just means diced. They must be expressly labeled as such on the packaging. Now, you cross-reference that with 21 U.S.C. Section 333D, addressing, among other things, penalties for misbranded food. And depending on the circumstances, admittedly, you could end up with a federal crime. Onion rings. I feel so good about myself, John, being two for two. <laughs> well, you know, I'm sure I'm sure President Obama's listening and he knows that he made the right pick. <laughs> He's probably quite worried about me since I did pick both of those. Yeah. He's proud that it's nominee he knows onion ring laws. <laughs> I mean, it's huge. The ever growing part of the law. Judge, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a uh educational and interesting time for me and Maggie, I know, and our audience will agree. Well, thank you and Maggie so much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, I'd learned about two very important statutes. <laughs> I also want to thank my co-host, Maggie Mendenhall-Casey, our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood on sound, and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download your podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar. 